Please take out your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 21. We continue to make our way through this book about the life and reign of King David. And our passage this morning comes from chapter 21, verses 15 through 22. And so, let's start by just reading the text. Hear the word of the Lord. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel, and David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary, and Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. After this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. And Sibachai, the Hushethite, struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. And Elhanan, the son of Jer-Oregim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature, who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in number. And he was also descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants." Our brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. So just to quickly recap what I said last week about this broader section of the book, right, this epilogue at the end of the books of Samuel, the chronological recounting of the lives of the prophet Samuel and King Saul and King David, uh, that runs straight through 2 Samuel chapter 20. Uh, In this section... Chapters 21 through 24, the author gives us a few more stories about David. Stories that don't necessarily come chronologically at the end of David's life. Like some of these stories actually happened much earlier in his life and his reign. But remember, this section is not just fridge management. This isn't just pulling out all the leftovers and kind of throwing them together in a random hodgepodge, mixing and matching for dinner. No, this is a well-planned, carefully structured, six-course meal of an epilogue. That is, the six stories that are included in this section, they're not randomly thrown together like, whoops, I forgot to include this earlier, let me just throw this in at the end. No, they are very intentionally chosen and arranged so that we, the reader, after we finish the chronological account of David's life, so that we, the reader, might have a few additional stories to help us understand, kind of big picture, what the life and reign of David was all about. And so you've got six stories in this epilogue. Uh, David's men, uh, sorry, David dealing with God's judgment, then David's men, then David's words, and then another story about David's words, and another story about David's men, and lastly, another story about David dealing with God's judgment. And you can see how they are intentionally Uh, symmetrically arranged. And so in this very intentionally constructed section of the book, what we as readers ought to be 
asking ourselves, why did the author choose to include these particular stories from the life of David here? And specifically, thinking about our passage for this morning, a passage about the heroic exploits of some of David's men, in addition to the mirror passage in chapter 23 that then lists out some of David's mighty men. Like, why does the author think it would be good for us to finish this book with these particular passages about David's men? You may have noticed as we've worked our way through First and Second Samuel that the author brings a fair amount of attention to David's many, many, many military victories. Like, this man is remarkably successful in battle. It all started, of course, with his defeating Goliath as a young man, but it doesn't stop there. You've got his early victories against the Philistines when he's working as a general in Saul's army. You've got his battles against the Geshurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites while he's in exile. You've got his wars against Ishbosheth and the house of Saul. You've got his defeating the Jebusites and capturing Jerusalem. Got his battles against the Philistines and the Moabites and the Edomites and the Syrians after he becomes king. And you've even got his putting down of Absalom's rebellion and Sheba's rebellion. If you think about it, that's a lot of ink given to his many, many battles. And by any metric you could come up with, total number of victories, career battlefield winning percentage, Uh, Wins above replacement king, like any metric you can come up with. He is at the top of any conceivable leaderboard. Now, ultimately, that's because God's with him in a very special way, a very unique way as his anointed king. We've seen several times in the books of Samuel just these uh, very important phrases like the Lord was with David or, or the Lord gave victory to David. But at the same time, Remembering that the sovereign God who ordains the ends also ordains the means to those ends. The author seems to be making the point here in these two sections that a large part of David's military success was due to the fact that God granted him many valiant men who helped him along the way. Or to put it another way, God accomplishes the end of giving victory to David throughout his reign through the means of these valiant men that he gave him. And so the main point in these two passages seems to be, to borrow a line from John Donne, no man is an island. We've seen snippets of that principle kind of being illustrated throughout 1 and 2 Samuel. We think of Joab and we think of Ittai and we think of Hushai and others who've played prominent roles in some of these battles. But here the author gives us two passages that are entirely dedicated to the heroic exploits of the men who God used to help David to be as successful as he was. And so that's the focus of our passage this morning. It's a passage containing four short stories about David's men, how they did valiant things in fighting for David's kingdom. So with all that said, let's look at our verses now. If you are a note taker and you're wanting an outline, I'll give you an outline. Here you go. Point number one is Philistine number one. Point number two, Philistine number two. 
Point number three, Philistine number three, and point number four, Philistine number four. You say that's not the most helpful outline ever, but I guarantee you, you're not going to be sitting around this afternoon wondering, what was point number three today? (laughs) So point number one, Philistine number one. Verse 16, we meet this guy, this Philistine warrior, Ishbi Benob. And when you are expecting a baby like we are, you end up spending a lot of time reading uh, baby name lists. Uh, somehow, in the top 100 U.S. baby boy names of 2023, Ishbi Benob did not make the cut. <laughs> Assume it's somewhere in the 100s. I'll tell you what, Houston, I'll tell you what. I will be gracious. I will defer. You can have Ishbi Bonob. I'll come up with another name. <laughs> We're told in verse 16 that Ishbi Bonob was one of the descendants of the giants. Some people take that to mean that he was a descendant of Goliath. Some people take that to mean that he was a descendant of the Rephaim people who were noted for their unusual height. And some people think it's referring to a specific mercenary group of just very large men. Whichever way you understand it, this guy was a big, intimidating dude. Anytime the Bible gives you a detailed description about someone's weaponry or armor, remember how Goliath was once described? It's making the point that the person being described was a fearsome warrior. And so here, look at Ishbi Benob. We're told about his spear. It's weighing 300 shekels of bronze. His new sword or a new weapon of some kind. This guy was a big, intimidating dude. And so, Ishbi Benob, maybe it's not a household name like Goliath, but when we read at the end of verse 16 that he thought to kill David, well, our antennas of concern for David should be going up because this guy is no weakling. And so there's a battle between the Philistines and the Israelites. David is leading his men into the fray. And in the midst of the battle, we're told that he becomes tired and weary. So maybe he's resting. Maybe he's just catching a break. Maybe he's laying low somewhere. But the text makes it seem like he's not as heavily guarded and protected as he usually would have been. And somehow Ishbi Benob finds him. Now Ishbi Benob knows that if he kills David, the great King David... Well, that would have huge ramifications, huge implications in terms of the Philistine-Israelite war. Kind of reminds us of what Ahithophel once said. You remember Ahithophel, Absalom's counselor? You remember his advice to Absalom when they were trying to overthrow King David? He says, all we got to do is kill David. So let me go only after David, because if I can kill David, then all of his men are going to scatter. So here, Ishbi Benob has his opportunity to make Ahithophel's dream come true, to kill David, to deal the Israelites such a heavy blow that they might never recover. But, verse 17 tells us, Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Now, in our study so far of 1 and 2 Samuel, uh, we have largely seen Abishai as this Rash, impulsive, unnecessarily violent guy. And David oftentimes has to rein him in. You remember back in 1 Samuel 26, David and Abishai, they sneak into Saul's camp 
And there Saul is, fast asleep. And Abishai says, we can just end this thing right now. We can end this whole running away from Saul thing right now. Let me kill him. David has to restrain him. Do not destroy him, for who can put his hand out against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Then back in 2 Samuel 16, you remember Shimei is cursing David. Abishai's ready, right then and there, to take his head off. And again, David has to restrain him. Leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. Then in 2 Samuel 19, well, there's Shimei again, this time coming to apologize to David, to seek his forgiveness, and Abishai's ready to kill him again. Once again, David has to restrain him. What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? But now for all those negative examples, like for all those times that David must have been wondering, like, what am I going to do with this guy? This guy's unhinged. Well, here's one instance in which Abishai's bravery his fearlessness, his readiness to just jump into action works very much in David's favor. Like the text makes it seem like David was this close to being killed by Ishbi Benob, but God sends just the right person at just the right time, and Abishai saves the day. But now look at what happens as a result of this close call. Israel was this close to losing their king in battle. And so David's men have to convince him now, you shall no longer go out with us to battle lest you quench the lamp of Israel. Basically, you're too valuable to keep entering into the front lines like this. If you die, surely everybody's primarily gunning for you. If you die, then the lamp of Israel is going to be put out and we the people are going to be walking in darkness. Like we can't risk this. You might remember that his men say something very similar back in 2 Samuel 18. Uh, You remember this? They're going out to battle against Absalom's men. And the men said, 2 Samuel 18, 3, You shall not go out. For if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. Now, all of this I think, shed some interesting light on something that we came across many, many chapters ago, all the way back in 2 Samuel 11. Remember the account of David and Bathsheba? Sometimes David catches a lot of heat there because he didn't go out to battle with his men. Well, that's what happens when you don't go out to battle. That's what happens when you don't do what you're supposed to be doing, David. Well, yeah, it's true that David couldn't have done what he did if he was out in battle. But we see here a valid reason why he might have stayed back. It's not necessarily because he was neglecting his duties. It's not necessarily because he was being lazy. It's not necessarily because he was hoping for an opportunity to sin. No, it very well may have been just this principle of military prudence and wisdom being applied. You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. Now, that's no excuse for what David did in staying back. But the irony is that the lamp of Israel was quenched anyway, right? Just in an entirely different way. And so we, here we have a Philistine number one, and his name is Ishbi Benob. That brings us now to Philistine number two. 
It's a guy, it's uh, another one of the descendants of the giants, and his name is Saf. Saf is killed by Sibekai, the Hushethite. And really, there's not much more to say about Saf. Like, he gets one verse, and the only thing that he does in that one verse is get killed. But there are two important things kind of in the big picture that I don't want you to miss here. And number one, look at the sentence that introduces the battle between Sibekai and Saf. After this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. Uh, we need to remember that this isn't just some random one-on-one fight. Sibekai and Saf, they just bumped into each other at the wrong place, at the wrong time, and they decide to throw down. No, this happens in the context of a war between Israel and the Philistines, and their longtime enemies. And as a matter of fact, all four of these incidents happen in that context. And the parallel account to this in First Chronicles 20 adds an interesting little detail that after Sibekai struck down Saf, quote, the Philistines were subdued. And so this isn't just the, some personal score being settled here. Uh, this is in the context of God's people being victorious over God's enemies. Right? Sibekai's slaying of Saf comes in the context of and presumably greatly contributes to an Israelite victory. The second thing I don't want you to miss, right? we might read a sentence like, then Sibekai the Hushethite struck down Saf, who was one of the descendants of the giants, and we might not think too much of it. But don't forget, it wasn't too long before this that another Philistine giant challenged all of Israel to fight him, and absolutely nobody stepped up. The text in 1 Samuel 17 tells us explicitly, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And so a young man named David was noted back then for his unique trust in the Lord. Like he was the only one bold enough to actually believe that the Lord would grant Israel victory over her enemies. But now, it's not just David. It's not just David to whom God has given this trust and courage and boldness to go against these descendants of the giants. Now, perhaps spurred by David's example, it's also others under him. It's Abishai, and it's Sibekai, and it's Elhanan, and it's Jonathan. And so in that sense, God's people have come a long way since 1 Samuel 17. Now that principle is generally true, is it not? That there's a somewhat contagious aspect to trusting in the Lord. The courage and the boldness that comes from it. Isn't that why so many missionaries came out of Wheaton College in the years after Jim Elliot gave his life for the gospel? Isn't that why we're so much more eager to evangelize and have difficult conversations when we see other brothers and sisters doing it so faithfully? And isn't that one of the biggest reasons why we need the local church? Why we need other believers in our lives? That we might stir one another up to love and good works. The Philistine number two is Saf. 
Philistine number three. Okay, so this one comes with some textual questions. Let me address those first. Verse 19, if you're looking in the ESV, says, And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob, and Elhanan, the son of Jer Oregon, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. We're reading this passage last night in our family Bible reading, and Paxton says, Wait a minute. David killed Goliath. Ah, good listening. Okay, so what's going on here? Well, could it be that there were two Philistines from Gath? That's what it means to be a Gittite. Uh, Two Philistines from Gath, both named Goliath. I guess that's entirely possible. But given how famous the Goliath that David defeated is, like, don't you think that In the context of David's war against the Philistines, don't you think that the author would have distinguished between the two Goliaths? At least in some way, uh, that he might avoid confusion. Suppose I were to go to the corporate offices of Wendy's, you know, the fast food chain, and I were to start telling everyone that I was going to get lunch with Dave Thomas. That would be confusing to everybody there. They'd be like, wait, you're going to get lunch with our founder who died 20 years ago. That doesn't make any sense. And I'd say, no, 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 not that Dave Thomas. I'm talking about that Dave Thomas that goes to my church. (laughs) You can't be in the context of Wendy's and talk about our Dave Thomas without some clarification. In the same way, you can't be in the context of David's battles and talk about this other dude named Goliath without some clarification. And so if it's not a second giant named Goliath, well, another possibility, some have floated, that Elhanan is actually another name for David. Like David is his kingly name and Elhanan is like his family name or something like that. I think this explanation makes even less sense than the first. He never once in the narratives of Samuel is referred to as Elhanan. He's always called David. And so why? Unless the narrator is playing some mean trick on us. Like, why would he use a different name for David without any clues that he's going to do so in just this one instance? I think the most likely explanation is alluded to in your footnote, if you're using an ESV. It tells you to contrast 1 Chronicles 20, verse 5. And here's what it says in 1 Chronicles 20, verse 5. There was again war with the Philistines. And Elhanan, the son of Jair, struck down Lami, the brother of Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And so the Philistine in question here is not Goliath. It's Goliath's brother, a guy named Lami. Which means that what we have in 2 Samuel is a scribal omission. Uh, We're we're somewhere in the transcription process. Some words were lost. Uh, In this case, the brother of is lost. Uh, And so it should read, Elhanan, the son of Jer Oregim, the Bethlehemite, struck down the brother of Goliath the Gittite. It's a good place to remind us that the scriptures in their original manuscripts, like 1 and 2 Samuel as they were originally written, that is the inerrant God-breathed word of God transcriptions, copies of that original, to the extent that a scribe might have made a minor error or omission, that's not necessarily inerrant. 
Of course, we do have very reliable and trustworthy transcriptions and copies, and that's because of God's grace in preserving his word for his people. But on rare occasions, we do get these minor differences in the copied manuscripts, none of which would change any major doctrines, by the way, that we then have to reconcile, and this seems to be one such example. So suppose that this is Lami. This is the brother of Goliath the Gittite that we're talking about here. Well, he certainly would have reason, and perhaps more than your average Philistine, for wanting to destroy the Israelites. After all, he's trying to avenge his brother. But he too is stopped in his quest. He's cut down by one of David's men named Elhanan. And so just as David did to Goliath those years ago, now Elhanan does to Goliath's brother. Philistine number three is Lami, the brother of Goliath. That brings us to Philistine number four. This guy, we don't even know what his name is. All we know about this guy is that he had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, which is, just in case you never got past second grade math, 24 in number. This guy has a genetic condition called polydactyly, which basically you're born with an extra finger. Apparently, this is the kind of interesting stuff you can find on the internet, it is a condition that is more common than you might think. Uh, Something like one out of every 500 babies is born with some form of this, though it's usually not a full finger, and so it's pretty quickly removed at birth. Some people, though, like this Philistine and the National League leader in saves in the year 2000, a relief pitcher named Antonio Alfonseca, pitched for the Marlins, uh, they do develop the full six fingers. Alfonseca's nickname, by the way, was the octopus, which makes absolutely no sense if you think about it. But anyway, the most pertinent detail about this guy, it's not even his fingers, it's not his toes, as interesting as that might be. It's what it says at the beginning of verse 21. He taunted Israel. He taunted Israel. Other translations have he defied Israel. And that reminds us of the other Philistine giant who once defied Israel back in the day. Yet the same Hebrew word that's in this verse was used to describe what Goliath once did. And you remember David's indignation in response. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Goliath knew, and David knew, and this six-fingered Philistine knew that to defy Israel is to defy the God of Israel. And so here is this six-fingered Philistine. He is not unlike Goliath. He's standing there, he's blaspheming God, he's cursing God, he's defying God, and here's this Israelite Jonathan, not unlike David, fighting for the honor and glory of God. And again, God strikes down those who taunt and defy him. Jonathan kills this giant. Philistine number four, the six-fingered giant. So that's Philistine number one, Philistine number two, Philistine number three, Philistine number four, and then we have this summary verse at the end. Look at verse 22. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. And so that's our story. For short narratives of David's men 
striking down some Philistine giants in battle. Four accounts of how David's men helped to deliver the Israelites from their sworn enemies, the Philistines. But is there anything more that we can take away from this passage? Are these just meant to be plain historical records of military victories? No different from the military honor rolls that other ancient societies kept, as more liberal commentators have suggested, with nothing really for the child of God to take away. Or should we take the Apostle Paul at his word when he writes that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work? I'm going to go with the Apostle Paul. So let me leave you with four takeaways from this narrative, four general principles that this passage points us to. Takeaway number one, God's people are always at war. God's people are always at war. You may have noticed that in contrast to most of the narratives of the books of Samuel, there is a certain brevity and a a lack of detail to these stories. They're just given in rapid-fire succession, and there's an obvious economy of words in this section which makes it all the more interesting that the author spends so many of his comparatively few words in this section repeating one phrase over and over and over. Did you catch it? Verse 15, there was war again between the Philistines and Israel. Verse 18, after this, there was war again with the Philistines. Verse 19, and there was again war with the Philistines. And verse 20, and there was again war. War at Gath. If that seems repetitive, it's because it is. So do we need to enroll this guy in writing 101? Does someone need to teach him about conjunctions like and that make such repetition unnecessary? Well, no. Not if he's being intentionally repetitive in this section to make a larger point that God's people are always at war. There was again war. Like just because David killed Goliath once upon a time, that doesn't mean that the Philistines are just magically gone. And just because Ishbi Benob was killed, or Saf was killed, or Lami was killed, or the six-fingered guy was killed, well, there was again war with the Philistines. And if it's not the Philistines... Well, there's always Edomites and Moabites and Assyrians and Babylonians who are all too happy to take their place in warring against the people of God. And we haven't even mentioned the internal strife, the civil wars of Absalom and Sheba, the soon-to-come split of the kingdom under Rehoboam. God's people are always at war. And what's true of David and God's people back then in a military sense? Well, it remains true of God's people, those who have trusted in Christ, in a spiritual sense. God's people are always at war. Whether it's the schemes of the devil or wrestling against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's why the New Testament instructs us to put on the whole armor of God because God's people are always at war. 
And isn't it true that as soon as one battle seems to be over, well, another one soon pops up. There was again war with the Philistines. And not just war from the outside. Often the, the war rages strongest on the inside. Remember what Peter said. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against the soul. And again, when by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, well, just because God has given you grace to grow in one area of your life, that hardly means the war is over. There was again war with the Philistines. Friend, if you think being a Christian is just a life of ease and prosperity and coasting, well, that's just not what the Bible teaches. It's only through many tribulations, battles both outward and inward, that we can enter the kingdom of God. There was again war with the Philistines. Takeaway number one, God's people are always at war. But don't be discouraged. Don't let the hard truth of takeaway number one cause you to dismay. Instead, the child of God can take heart because, well, takeaway number two, God promises his enemies will be destroyed. God promises his enemies will be destroyed. Here in 2 Samuel 21, we've got four stories that are about four men who were ultimately destroyed. What do they have in common? Well, they're all Philistines. But even more than that, they're all the enemies of God. You see, this isn't just about some conflict between David's men and these giants or, or even Israel against the Philistines. Like, big picture, right? This is God's enemies versus God's people. And ultimately, it's God's enemies versus God. One way we can see that Look at what God himself promised to David once upon a time in 2 Samuel chapter 3. The Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people, Israel, from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. It's not just David. You're going to save your people from the Philistines. It's I, God, will save my people, God's people, from the hand of their enemies. And so Abishai defeating Ishbi Benob and Sibekai defeating Saph and Elhanan defeating Lami and Jonathan defeating the six-fingered guy. And for that matter, David defeating Goliath. Like all of those, big picture, are about God delivering his people from his enemies for his glory according to his promises. This is takeaway number two. God promises that his enemies will be destroyed. And that's the hope for all of God's people. Whether it's David or it's me and you. That, that even though our lives are full of tribulations and trials and enemies and battles and our own sinfulness at every corner, and the temptation grows to uh, just be weary and, and weak and give up, we have the promises of a faithful God. That the seed of the woman has indeed come to crush the head of the serpent. That we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That God gives us the victory 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. That on the cross and through his resurrection, Jesus triumphed over sin and death and the devil and so have all who share in him. And that the Holy Spirit is at work in us, sanctifying us, killing sin within us that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. Like when life comes at us hard, right? When there's battles, when there's war with the Philistines. Well, that's when God's people more than ever have to cling to his promises. Takeaway number two, God promises his enemies will be destroyed. Takeaway number three, God's people need God's people. God's people need God's people. So takeaway number one, God's people are always at war, but we can take heart because takeaway number two, God promises his enemies will be destroyed. But trusting in God's promises shouldn't then cause us to isolate ourselves and say, well, I don't need other people. I can do this on my own. I've got the promises of God. Because here's the thing. God often uses the means of his people to bring about the fulfillment of his promises in us. He often uses the means of his people to bring about the fulfillment of his promises in us. Or to put it more simply, takeaway number three, God's people need God's people. Going back to what we said in the beginning, I think this is at least part of the reason why this story is even included here. To show that a large part of David's military success throughout his life was due to the fact that God gave him so many valiant men to fight alongside him. Sure, David had the promises of God. By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. He had that promise. But that does not cause David to say, well, Abishai, I don't need you. I've got the promises of God, so don't you dare try to interfere with Ishbi Benob. I got him. I can handle this. That, for all we know, would have been the end of David. Or Elhanan, I don't need your help, Elhanan. Sibachai, you can just leave me alone. No, David, while firmly trusting God's promises, also knew that God often uses his people to fulfill his promises. Friends, again, this illustrates a broader principle in the lives of all of God's children. Dear church, we need one another. David was not meant to fight God's enemies on his own. And neither are we. Whether it's sin or trials or temptations or discouragement or spiritual warfare, God has given us one another that we might bear one another's burdens. That none of us would have to go at it by ourselves. That together we might encourage one another and spur one another on and help one another to fight. So just to use one example, if you are a Christian, God has promised you in, your wor- in his word to sanctify you. But that doesn't mean that you retreat into your corner and isolate yourself and just wait for the magic to happen. No, it means you plug yourself into a church and you earnestly seek discipleship and accountability and fellowship knowing that his people are one of the means that God is going to use to fulfill his promise to you to sanctify you. 
And so friends, I challenge each of you to ask yourself, are there ways in which you have cut yourself off from this vital means of God's grace, his people? Maybe it's inconsistent church attendance. Not prioritizing your time with other believers outside of church. Not allowing other people into your lives that that they might bear your burdens with you. That might be an unconventional word in our day of individualism and self-sufficiency. Even among professing Christians, so many are saying, who needs the church? Why do I need the church? But it's exactly what the Bible, the Old and New Testaments, both the examples of David and the letters of Paul seem to be teaching us that God's people need God's people. So takeaway number one, God's people are always at war. Takeaway number two, God promises his enemies will be destroyed. Takeaway number three, God's people need God's people. Which brings us to our last takeaway. Takeaway number four, God's people must look to Christ. I think one of the truly fascinating things that we've seen in the book of 2 Samuel is just how human David is. We saw that throughout chapters 11 through 20, right? The chapters dealing with his sin and then all of its fallout. We just saw over and over and over how even as God's anointed king, like just how human David was. Like the author of 2 Samuel pulls no punches. There's no attempt to lionize him. There's no attempt to airbrush his faults. There's no attempt to minimize his weaknesses. King David is presented in full view, both as a man after God's own heart and a man with a heart much like our own. As you can imagine, if this was some secular writing, the purpose of which was simply to venerate the great king, you can imagine how different this section in particular would have come out. First of all, the credit for all the victories, I want to go to some no-name randoms like Sibachai and Elhanan and Jonathan. No, they would have been ascribed to David himself. But David struck down Ishbi Benob, and David struck down Saph, and so on. And then verse 22 would read, These four were descended from the giants of Gath, and they fell by the hand of David. Period. End of sentence. And second of all, a detail like that in verse 15, that David grew weary pointing out his very significant physical limitations, that never would have been included. But this is not some secular writing. This is God's word. And we're reminded once again that the point of God's word, the point of the books of Samuel, is not that you would walk away from it with this great view of David. Looking to David to be your superhero and your savior. No, the point is that you would come away looking to Christ. Christ who, taking on our humanity, taking on David's humanity, subjected himself to all the limitations of humanity. And so he too, just like David, the scriptures tell us, grew weary. But Jesus who, remaining very God of very God, even in his humanity. Merry Christmas. He never once sinned. 
A vast difference as we've seen over and over and over in 2 Samuel from King David. And while David was protected by his men, you shall no longer go out with us to battle. And while David had others to step in constantly and help him in his task, the Abishais, the Sibachais, the Elhanans, the Jonathans, well, Jesus hung by himself on the cross, forsaken by his closest disciples, alone to bear the wrath of God, because only he could take our sins upon himself. Unlike David, who was viewed as too valuable to give up in battle, well, Jesus gave himself up as a ransom for many. David must be spared. But Jesus could not be. David must not die. But Jesus must. So that all who trust in him might have their sins forgiven. Might be made righteous in God's sight. Might be made God's children. Friend, perhaps you walked in here this morning and you are not a Christian. Well, if you remember one thing from this sermon... Let it be this. You are a sinner. You deserve God's judgment. You need a savior. But Jesus is that savior. Jesus is the only one who can save you from your sin. David is no savior. Second Samuel seems to constantly be making the point that he's much more like us than we might initially think. But Jesus is that savior. And so all of God's people must look to him. Takeaway one, God's people are always at war. Takeaway two, God promises his enemies will be destroyed. Takeaway three, God's people need God's people. And takeaway four, God's people must look to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that every page of the Old Testament ultimately points to your son, Jesus. Father, we pray that we would see Christ, that we would rejoice in Christ, that we would worship Christ more as a result of our time in this text. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.